Well, welcome today. Uh, if you are new today, so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. We're in a series on sin. And, and uh, I want to begin by telling you uh, about a story that I read. It was a story uh, told by a guy named Josh Butler who had a friend who hated Christianity. He, he couldn't understand how anyone would want to be a Christian. And as their friendship grew, uh, he began to hear more and more about why his friend, his friend's name was Jeremiah, why Jeremiah hated Christianity so intensely. And Jeremiah was an indigenous uh, individual and, and he was sent to a residential school when he was a child. And the whole goal, the stated goal of that school was to strip him of his culture and of his language and of his identity and make him into a white person. In fact, the the motto that hung above the entrance of that school said this, kill the Indian, save the man. And it turns out they came pretty close to accomplishing the first part of that slogan. One of the very first things that happened to him when he arrived at that school was they cut off his hair so that he would have a haircut like a, like a Western uh, boy would have. And then the second thing is that they circumcised him. They forcefully circumcised him, which you can imagine would have been incredibly humiliating and confusing for a boy at that age. And then they systematically separated him from his family. They felt that his family was a bad influence on their attempt to try to assimilate him into Western culture. And so they severely limited his, his visits home. And even in the summer when he could have gone home and been with his family, they instead sent him to live with a white family living in the city. And eventually he began to develop a, a shame for his own culture and for his own identity. And then, and I mean, this is just so hard. It's just, it's so terrible. But then as an altar boy in the church, he was molested by a priest, which of course further felt him, uh, left him feeling ashamed and powerless. And that, that molesting went on for years. But fortunately, finally, he fell in love. He, he, he fell in love with his high school sweetheart and head over heels. And he, he finally proposed to her and she said yes. But before they could get married, uh, one day, uh, four white boys from the Catholic high school uh, forced her car off the road in a racially motivated attack and she was killed. And so you can understand you can understand then why somebody like Jeremiah would hate Christianity with a passion. I mean, it's hard to blame him. And, and, and one of his biggest questions, one of his biggest issues with Christianity was this idea of God's judgment. And the question was this. If, if God sends Christians to heaven and those who aren't Christians to hell, then does that mean that that molesting priest who caused such pain and, and, and hardship in my life, does that mean that he's going to enter the kingdom of God, but because I didn't tick Christian on the survey, that therefore I'm not going to heaven? I mean, the, those who, who were his teachers, who cut his hair and cut his body, those who were administrators who shamed him, for his identity and for his, his you know, background. That those who are racist politicians who established that whole system, will they be going to heaven simply because they sat in a pew every Sunday and, and, and are Christians and, and he and his community aren't? I mean, that's the question 
that he asks. Is that really what the judgment of God is all about? Is, is, is that really what the Bible teaches? That, that's a good question. And that's the question that Paul is going to address next in this passage that we come to. Now, he's not addressing this exact situation, but, but in the context of a discussion around sort of the Jewish world of that day, he is going to set out for us a biblical concept of judgment, of God's judgment. And it's going to turn out that when we look at it carefully, that the, the question of the judgment of God isn't the problem for someone like Jeremiah. It's actually the solution. It's actually how God deals with that kind of evil and sin. So let's look at what Paul says. We're back in Romans chapter 2. And if you remember from last week, at the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul explained a number of important things. First of all, he explained that we're all sinners, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and, and people who aren't Jewish. Secondly, he explained that, that not only are we all sinners, but that we're all judged by the exact same standard. There is no special exception for one group of people over another. And thirdly, he explained that we're all liable. We're all liable before God for our actions, even those who haven't actually uh, heard God's word. And, and now he's going to address one of the concerns that they're going to have because the Jewish people in that day would have been quite unsettled by that because they would say, well, no, 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 Paul, you've forgotten. We are a special group. We're the chosen ones from God. We, we're set apart by him. And therefore, we are, we are saved. We're good before God, not based upon even our good works, but simply based upon the fact that we're Jewish. And so we won't be judged by him because this is who we are. And so Paul is going to address that issue now in this letter. And, and here's what he says. In verse 17, he says, Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have, the law, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that People should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's fascinating. The Apostle Paul says to the Jewish people who hold this view, he says, look, you think that you're really something. You think that you're a special group because of, of, of your relationship to God and that therefore you get a pass when it comes to judgment. He, he says, no, no, of course not. The law, of course, is good. But, but if it doesn't change how you live, if you're just the same as everyone else, if you live a life of hypocrisy. Now, Paul is speaking to the Jews in his day, but he could just as well be speaking to the Christians in our day because the same principle applies. I mean, he, he could say this now. Now, you, if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on the Bible and boast in your knowledge of God, if you know his will and approve what is right and, and how people ought to live, and if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for those who are lost and an instructor for the next generation, if you think that in, in the Bible you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, 
Do you teach yourself? Are you a hypocrite as well? I mean, you, you know, do you teach millions to follow Jesus, but then, then swindle them out of all kinds of money from your televangelistic organization? Do you preach against adultery and yet, you know, molest children behind closed doors? Do you preach against the ways of the world and yet use those very ways to find power and control people in your organization? He says the name of God is hated and scorned and derived among those who don't know God because of you. I mean, Paul comes down so hard. He comes down so hard on religious hypocrisy. But it's as hard as Paul is, it's nothing compared to Jesus. You should hear what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus, Jesus calls the religious leaders who are hypocrites, he calls them whitewashed tombs. In other words, shiny and beautiful on the outside and dead on the inside. And he says, he tells them that they're like blind guides who travel over land and sea to bring one person, to convert one person. But when they do, they make them more a child of hell than they themselves are. And he, and he warns them. He, he calls them a brood of vipers who kill the messengers of God and who are in danger of being condemned to hell. It's not just the religious leaders either. At another place, I mean, Jesus, Jesus says this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean, I can't think of a, a more clear example of causing a little one to fall away than the story of Jeremiah. Just because the people who did those things to Jeremiah called themselves Christians doesn't mean that they will be welcomed gladly into the kingdom of God. In fact, when they stand before God, they may wish that instead they'd had a heavy millstone hung around their neck and been drowned in the depths of the sea. You see, Jesus hates, he hates religious hypocrisy and God will judge it. I mean, when people tell you that they're upset about pedophile priests and about sleazy, greedy televangelists and about hypocrisy in the church, the answer is yes, me too, and so is Jesus. Jesus hates that hypocrisy. But that raises some sobering questions for us. I mean, we're not pedophile priests, we're not sleazy, greedy televangelists, but but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't examine our own lives to make sure that there isn't hypocrisy in our own lives. Now listen, hypocrisy does not mean that you, you sin and do something wrong, that God tells you to do what's right. That, that in itself does not make you a hypocrite. If you sin against God, if you do something that is against his ways, and then you're like, oh, this is wrong, I confess, God, forgive me, I try to change, that's not hypocrisy. That's just a good, solid Christian life. I mean, we all do that. That's just, that's just part of Christian life. No, no, hypocrisy is different. Hypocrisy is a mindset that says, my faith in Jesus is totally and utterly disconnected and has no connection whatsoever with the rest of my life or another part of my life. So for instance, you could, you could be a business person who says, well, I follow Jesus, I, I go to church on Sunday, but it has nothing to do with how I run my business at all. 
I mean, on Sunday, you you there and worshiping God and, and doing all that. But on, on Tuesday, you're yelling at your staff all the time and, and you're manipulating them and you're, you're, you're working them to the bone and hardly paying them. And, and when it comes to your customers, you're cutting corners and you're trying to, to rip them off as much as you can and, and you're trying to cheat the government. I mean, if you have that disconnection between your faith and how you run your business, that would put you in the category of hypocrite. And Paul would say, your employees and your customers blaspheme God's name because of you. Or, or if you, I mean, if you're a parent and every Sunday the whole family dresses up, you come, everything's super nice, and everyone looks wonderful, but, but the rest of the week you treat your children and your spouse with contempt and, and, and you just mistreat them in all kinds of ways and, and, and you use the Bible as a kind of a, a way to, to bludgeon them, to, to make them do what you want to do, but you don't actually live out any of it. That's a wild hypocrisy. And Paul says, your children and your spouse will blaspheme God's name because of you. Or if you're an employee, same thing, church on Sunday, community group on Wednesday night, but all week you're backstabbing and gossipy and selfish in your work. Your coworkers blaspheme God's name because of you. You see, hypocrisy is if you think and act like there's no real genuine connection between what Jesus teaches and how you live in every area of your life. Your business, your family, your job, your money, your, your time, how you think about the poor. I mean, if you separate your faith from Jesus, then you are at risk. If you separate your faith in Jesus from the rest or a portion of your life, you are at risk of hypocrisy and coming under the judgment of God. So here's the point that that Paul is making here. Religious hypocrisy is a hateful thing to God. He will judge it. And you won't escape simply because you claim to be a Christian. And this is what Paul's going to tackle next. You see, again, he's talking to the Jewish people in his world, but they believed that they had a get-out-of-jail-free uh, get card when it came to Judgment Day before God because they were Jewish. And the sign that they would get out of jail free was the circumcision that they had. They saw circumcision as almost like this magical ceremony, this, this good luck charm that simply protected them from any of God's judgment. And now Paul is going to rip down that whole idea. Here's what he says in verse 25. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you will become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Paul says, look, circumcision is no magic charm. I mean, this, this doesn't sort of guarantee that you won't face judgment. In fact, it's useless unless, unless you live the way that God calls you to. If you don't, it's meaningless. And again, the parallel with the Christian life is similar. If you baptize as an infant, if your parents had you baptized, or if you prayed a prayer once at an evangelistic event, or if you're a Christian because everyone else in your family is a Christian, or because of the country you were born in, that, 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 that is no different. It's no magic charm to keep you away, to keep away God's wrath. Those things in and of themselves are useless to you unless you actually live the way God calls you to. Otherwise, frankly, it means nothing. 
Paul says that someone who hasn't done any of these things, but actually lives the way that God calls them to, for that person, even if they haven't prayed the prayer, even if they haven't been baptized, even if they don't sort of go everywhere explaining that they're a Christian, the fact of the matter is, in God's eyes, their life and how they live will be used to condemn you and how you live your life. Here's, here, here's what he says in verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. This would have been scandalous to the Jewish people. They believed that they were going to, because they were Jewish, because they were circumcised, they were going to join with God in judging the Gentiles, in judging the, the pagans that were out there. And now Paul turns it on its head and says, actually, if the pagans out there, if the Gentiles out there have been living more like God than you actually have, their lives will be used to condemn you. In other words, he's saying this, you'll be surprised on judgment day who is in and who is out. And again, the, Jesus teaches this same thing an awful lot. I mean, he tells all kinds of parables about, he tells a parable about a king who shows up at the banquet at, the, at that final day. And you know who's at the banquet? Not the self-righteous, not the self-made, not, not the self-assured, but rather the prodigals and the prostitutes. Surprise. He tells a story about a wedding banquet where he invites all these people to come and they turn him down. And who comes instead? The blind and the lame and the beggar and, and, and the outcast, the people you would least expect to see at a wedding banquet are all there. And you know who's out? The, 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 you know who's thrown out? The person who shows up thinking that they're dressed good enough. He says, no, no, you're out. And, and in another place it tells about an interaction Jesus had with a Roman centurion. Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, would you heal my servant and, and they have this interaction and, and you have to understand the context. We think Roman centurion sort of bold, noble, leading his forces. No, no. In, 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 in that day to the Jewish people, a Roman centurion was the equivalent of a Nazi general in the time of the World War II in an occupied country like France or, or Czechoslovakia. He was the enemy. He was the, the perpetrator of all kinds of evil and wrong and injustice. And he comes to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal his servant. And this is what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith as this Roman centurion. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says over and over and over again, there'll be a lot of surprises on Judgment Day. Don't assume that simply because someone claims to be a Christian that they'll be safe on Judgment Day. Don't assume that simply because they tick Christian on the box on the survey that they are actually a Christian. I mean, appearances are deceiving. Things aren't always what they like. I mean, to people living, uh, to, to people living near the residential schools, where this happened, the priest, I mean, he would have been an upstanding citizen. He, he would have been highly esteemed in the community. He would have been God's righteous representative in that place. In Jeremiah, I mean, that, that kid, he would have been like the, the troubled youth, the, the, the teenager with anger issues who just needs to trust God. 
but behind closed doors. Wickedness was being done that only God saw. And that's why judgment is important. This is why the judgment of God, when it's rightly understood, should give hope to someone like Jeremiah. God sees beneath the surface. He knows what no one else knows. As we talked about last week, when it comes time for judgment day, Jesus will reveal all of the secrets. They will all be laid bare. And then he will judge. And then he will punish evil. And then those who cause the least of these to stumble and who live their lives as though they were blessed by God and who may have, you know, ended their life having fallen asleep in peace on their bed at a ripe old age, they will then face judgment. Why does God judge? Because he loves people like Jeremiah so deeply. And because he is holy and he cares deeply about justice and because he hates evil and he hates hypocrisy. Here's, here's what you need to know. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is one. I mean, it's obvious, and yet sometimes we miss it. Just because someone prayed a prayer, just because they were baptized, just because they wear a priest's robe, or just because they lead a large Christian organization doesn't necessarily mean that they are automatically a Christian. Any more than someone who is circumcised automatically means that they're a Jew. But there is a way to know. There is a way to identify the real thing, what a true Christian is like or, or what a true Jew is in God's eyes. And that's what Paul explains next. Here's what he says in verses 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Paul says, if you want to identify the real thing, a real follower of, of God, he says, for, for a Jew, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not just an outward thing. It's not just a physical thing. It's an inward thing. It, it's an invisible thing. It's about a change of heart about, by the power of the Spirit. It, it's about living life approved by God, not by others. And the same applies to being a Christian. It isn't about an outward sign. It isn't about whether you prayed a prayer or not or, or whether you've been baptized or not. I mean, those are important things. And the prayer that you prayed may have been, probably was very valid. And the baptism is really important. If you're a follower of Jesus, a committed follower of Jesus, and you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. It's something that Jesus calls us to. Those are not bad things, but those are not sort of some kind of good luck charm. This is, well, I'm good now. I'm good. No, no, no. The sign of a true follower of Jesus is an inward thing. It, it, it's, it's about what God does in your life. The point is this. True Christianity is revealed in a transforming life. Not a perfect life. Not a life without sin. No one has that. We all struggle with sin. But a life that is in process that is being changed on the inside by the power of the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit at work in us to become slowly. And sometimes, at least for me, it feels really slowly. But nevertheless, slowly, more and more like Jesus all the time. But of course, that, that raises some questions then. That raises some interesting questions. And Paul's going to tackle four of them now. Here's what he says to begin with. Number one, verse, uh, chapter three, verse one. 
What advantage then is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? If being a Jewish person doesn't just guarantee that I, you know, automatically go to heaven, that I'm, I'm good on judgment day, then what is the advantage? And Paul says this, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. He says, being Jewish it isn't a guarantee that you go to heaven, but it means that you have the word of God to help you understand who God is and how he calls you to live. And that's an incredible advantage, a much greater advantage than many others have. Same as a follower of Jesus. When we have the word of God, we know, we understand who God is. We, we have this opportunity to read it and to live in light of it. It's an incredible advantage. Then the second question. Well, what if we're somewhere unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Here's the question. What, what about some who are incredibly hypocritical, especially the leaders? I mean, I mean, if key leaders in the church or Christians in general, if they are hypocrites, doesn't that nullify who God is? Doesn't it, doesn't it you know, discredit him? Does it make it no longer worthy to, to consider Christianity? And Paul's response in verse for is this, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul says, look, just because someone acts like a hypocrite, just because someone does something really stupid in the name of Jesus, doesn't mean that changes who God and Jesus are. That, that doesn't change their trustworthiness or their character or your, their faithfulness, not in the least. In fact, Paul says, if the entire human race were liars, if every single one of us were a hypocrite, it still wouldn't change God's nature or his trustworthiness. This is important to think about. You know, the Barna Research Group did a study on what were the things that, that caused people to struggle with doubts in their faith. What, 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 were the, what were the issues that caused Christians to abandon their faith? And, and what were some of the things that caused people who weren't believers to decide that they wanted nothing to do with faith? And so they did this huge survey and they, they talked to all kinds of different people. And you know what the number one thing is that causes people to either doubt or abandon or not examine the faith? It isn't hard questions about the Bible. It, it isn't uh, unanswered prayer. It, it isn't even human suffering. You know the number one thing that causes people to doubt and abandon the faith, it's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy within the church. Which is one of the reasons why God hates it so, so deeply. But it also means that if, God, if hypocrisy is causing you to doubt God, or to doubt whether you should be part of the church, or, or to question faith, you need to think carefully again about what Paul is saying here so that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, we, you wouldn't do the same thing anywhere else. It, Let's say a couple of Canadians left here, left Canada, went to a foreign country and did something really stupid. I mean, just, just so dumb and not, not right at all. Nothing that Canadians would normally do. I mean, if you saw that, would you be like, well, oh my goodness. That, that's a, though they're Canadians and they did something dumb. Therefore, I'm going to turn in my Canadian citizenship and I'm going to abandon the country because look what they did. I mean, no one would do that. You'd be like, they're idiots. There's millions of good Canadians here who would never dream of doing that. And that's not really a true picture of our country. 
And yet people do that all the time when it comes to faith. They say, there's a couple of idiots who did some really dumb stuff, so I'm going to abandon my faith in God. No, 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 wait, wait. Wait, just think carefully about that. Because God and his character is not, is not decided on by how other people act. So it hurts when people do that. And we have to be, I mean, we never want to see that. But remember, remember that God remains faithful no matter what. Here's the next question in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using human argument here. Now, now Paul says the questions are getting more ridiculous. In fact, I mean, this is just plain human thinking. But here's, 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 the, here's what they're saying. Here's the question. Look, if, if my sinfulness causes God's righteousness to be, you know, more practiced, then isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't I keep on sinning? It's a little bit like the question that sometimes is put forward. If Sometimes when a leader of a Christian organization is doing really, really wrong things, sometimes those around that leader will say, well, well we shouldn't really discipline them. We, we, we shouldn't really confront them. We shouldn't really surface this because so much good stuff is happening out there. And, and so, so wouldn't it be better for us just to cover over their sin so that all the good that they're doing carries on? That's the kind of question that's being asked here. And here's Paul's answer in verse 6. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Paul says, of course not. If there's sin, it needs to be dealt with. If God says, well, he's a Christian leader, it's really important, we just don't because all the good thing, then on what basis could God judge everyone else? No, of course that needs to come out. Of course it needs to be dealt with. Paul says, don't misunderstand how this thing works. And then one more question, the final question in verse 7. Someone might argue this. If my falsehood enhances God's trustworthiness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Huh. They're saying, look, the worse I am, the more wickedness I do, the better God looks. So guess what? God should be pleased, right? I mean, Paul's response, I mean, he just throws up his hands. Here's, here's what he says. His response is this. Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Paul says, it's such a ridiculous thought. It's so dumb that, that if you think that by doing evil, you're doing good, then you simply just deserve the condemnation that comes on you. I mean, I have nothing more to say, he says. Right? So here's the thing. When, when we get talking about this whole area of judgment, it's a hard topic. And, and sometimes people, you know, they, they just don't sort of think through it carefully enough. And so they begin to ask, I mean, what Paul points out are some crazy and, and twisted questions. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God is just and good. Often people say, well, if God were a good God, if he were a loving God, he wouldn't bring judgment and wrath. We see that kind of thinking is, is faulty thinking. In fact, the exact opposite tr is true. Because God is a good God, because God is a loving God, there should, there must be wrath and judgment. 
I mean, there should be wrath and judgment. There must be wrath and judgment because God loves people like Jeremiah. Because he hates what has been done to them. Because he hates hypocrisy. Because he hates evil. And because it would be wrong of those who did such things, who lived in such hypocrisy and did such evil, lived a full life and then died peacefully in their sleep, never having been punished for the kind of brokenness and wickedness that they brought on others. I mean, a good and loving God would not let that happen. And he does not. And so, along with grace and mercy and forgiveness, Justice, wrath, and judgment are also part of the gospel and part of the goodness of God. Okay, would you bow your heads with me? Let's, let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, this is not an easy topic. God, this is, this is a hard thing to talk about, a hard thing to think about. And yet, God, we see its importance. We see its value. God, we thank you that you don't just turn a blind eye to that. That ultimately, someone doesn't just get away with these things without somebody paying the price. And God, while we wish it on no one, we're so grateful that there is punishment for those who fail to repent, for those who don't turn to you, who those who don't seek your face. And Father, for us, God, may we, may we be so humble as we think about this. May we not think that somehow we're so much better, Father. Open our eyes to see again if there's hypocrisy in our lives. But God, may we also live in the grace and the truth that if we do repent, when we do genuinely seek you, when we, when we are genuinely following you, that your grace covers and your grace makes a way so that we can stand before you, so we can stand right before you. And so, God, would you help us to follow after you again? Where there is hypocrisy, God, would you root it out of our lives, as painful as that may be? And would you lead us back to you so that we follow you in every area of our life? God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us again today. I hope you encouraged as we continue to study and understand God's word in all its fullness, with all of its implications, but always remembering his incredible grace and his love. Jude, in his short little book that appears just near the end of the New Testament, at the very end, he, he ends with these words. I want to send you today with these words. Here's what he says. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory majesty power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all, all ages now and forevermore amen amen God bless you have a great week we'll see you next Sunday